Please take your Bibles, God's perfect, precious, powerful word for us today, and turn in it, if you would, to the book of Colossians, to the second chapter, and to the sixth, <clears throat> sixth verse. Every Sunday, every passage, every line, we are looking in this for Christ, seeking to see him, to understand him, to behold him, to gaze in wonder at him. With the emphasis that if Christ is sufficient for every need we have in salvation and in sanctification, then he must be preeminent in everything. So here's where we're at as we transition in the flow of the letter. Uh, I'll put up a couple of outlines here. The first one you haven't seen since the Sunday that we opened Colossians back in September. But um, it's a simple way to capture. The lines aren't all clean on chapter breaks, one, two, three, and four. But the letter, a third of it, deals with the heart of the gospel or the Savior and that Christ must be understood. Threats to the gospel in the middle portion, which is what we're beginning now, through Satan and the dangers that must be discerned. And then the effects of the gospel in the latter half or third of the book for the saints and how Christ-likeness must be developed. But the outline we've been following uh, is one I borrowed from John MacArthur's work through this book of Christ preeminence, always a factor, and it's been declared, and now we're beginning to see it defended, and then ultimately it'll be a calling for us to demonstrate it. So, in a more complex way, this is point number two on that outline. We've seen Christ declared, now we are beginning to look at Christ defended. And for the most part, just the brown three main areas are of note for now, but I wanted to put everything up for those who like to see the full picture. So this section goes back and forth. MacArthur's uh, outline just takes the brown points. Beware of empty philosophies, beware of religious legalism, beware of man-made disciplines. I take it a little further and say with every single one of those warnings in verses 8, 16, and 18, there is a call in response for us to focus instead on something having to do with Christ. You'll see him show up in the writing after every one of the sections really heavily in this first warning about empty philosophies, but also in the warning against legalism and in the warning against man-made regulations. In fact, I would put forth to you that this thought really doesn't end until chapter 3, verse 4. That the familiar set your mind on things above, all is flowing out of this warning that we would might set our mind on empty philosophies, we might set our mind on religious legalism, we might set our mind on man-made disciplines and think that those are the things that will sanctify us and make us holy and mature. So that's the big picture. Now we're going to zero in uh, on the section that we're on and you might notice that in that outline verses 5 and 6 aren't there and that's because they serve I think as a transition. But we're entering this section A of countering useless philosophies, empty deceit, whatever wording there you want to pull out of verse 8, with, and then there will be verses 9 through 15, the power of Christ and the good news. 
So today, our specific aim is verses 6 to 8 of chapter 2, which we've titled, Rooted in Christ in Order to Not Be Captive to Empty Deceit, or Walking in Christ. And the point of it is going to be, we're going to either walk and live in Christ, whom we've received for our salvation, and grow ever more in our faith and become established in him, in thankfulness, or it's very likely we will be taken captive by some kind of philosophy, some kind of deceit, some kind of lie that accords with human thinking and practices, but is not according to Christ. So that's the summary of those two verses. Here's how they read. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Father, this morning as we look at this portion of this letter of your glorious book, I pray for your help your Holy Spirit, revealing to our simple minds and hearts the truths of Christ, the truths of yourself that are transformative in their power. And I pray that you will press in both the call for us to walk in Christ and to understand what that means and looks like and the call for us to beware constantly, daily, of being taken captive by things that are not according to your Son. Help us to grasp it. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it. We ask in your name and for your glory. Amen. So verses 6 and 7 will just kind of title what God wants or wills for those whom he puts in his Son. And uh, what did I want to say with that? Oh, uh, this is an incredible sentence. I see it as a transition sentence between everything we've seen in the letter, 1, 3 through 2, 5, and 2, 8 through, and I'm going to argue again for 3, 4, uh, that this section is turning on this hinge. And, of course, we would say that because of the first word in verse 6. Therefore, first time we've seen it, it's a way, a very common way, particularly in Paul's writing, but another scripture as well to say, everything you've just been told, therefore, should lead to this. And in one sense, verses 6 and 7 capture some of the very essence of living the Christian life or the very heart of it. I love and find beauty, not only in what God says here, but in how he says it. Its concepts seem simple, but they're profound. There's at least eight important concepts. This is just verses 6 and 7, though we're aiming to get through verse 8 as well today. Eight important concepts, and again, lined up like semis on I-80, flying along. Seven verbs or verbals, which are words that often function like verbs but are used as descriptive words. And only three nouns. So, heavy on action. We'll think about each of these. 
but perhaps in a little different order than they show. And I just want to say, when we take Scripture out of the order that it's in, I never want to communicate this is a better order than the way that God put it, ever. But sometimes, seeing it in a different order that doesn't change its meaning just helps us see it in a new light, perhaps grasp it in a little deeper way, and that's my prayer and my hope in this. So, first, we're going to go to the sixth concept in the sentence, which is buried down in verse 7, just as you were taught, or the word picture that Jesus uses, uh, used was just as the seed was sown in your heart. And so uh, just a, a reminder here that this has been something that's been emphasized, particularly early in the letter. In verses 5, 6, and 7, we see heard, heard, learned. And then in 23, again, heard, all in chapter 1 there. So over and over and over, he's reminding them, this is the information that's been given to you orally, because they didn't have so much a written language. We could now add, for our own context, you heard or read, but the idea of the teaching coming to them. And then the last part of chapter one makes three other references to how the word and the truth and the gospel are being proclaimed, and how that teaching plays a critical role for Christ to be received by anybody and for anything else to happen after that. So even this moment in this sermon, we're doing some of what's referred to here, teaching, and yet I would emphasize that this alone is not nearly enough, but it's a part of how God brings the truth to us. So at the very heart, I would put forth in this whole thought is don't lose sight of the gospel. Don't lose sight of the truths that you have believed in order to be born again and to be saved. You never just move on from those and leave them in your rearview mirror. You were taught them, now walk in them in light of having received Christ through believing them. So this idea of receiving is a way that we would say, I was born again, I was saved, you became a Christian. You are given the gift of salvation and a savior. Uh, we might think of receiving the Lord as the means by which we receive forgiveness, by which we receive eternal life, by which we receive his righteousness imputed to us, by which we receive a new self and a new nature. So that's, that's the concept here in this receiving of a gift. It's not the same as the commonly used expression, I accepted Jesus into my heart. There can be some elements of truth in that, but what we want to emphasize is this isn't so much an invitation for Jesus to come in like he needs our permission and we'll grant it now. This is a begging of him to come in because it's the only means by which we will be saved from ourselves, from our depraved heart, from our sin, from the bondage, from the punishment, from God's wrath, all of these things. So it's a powerful expression that transforms a life. We might say Christ storms the castle of our hearts, rips out the throne of self in the old nature, replaces it with his new throne, and colloquially announces there's a new sheriff in town. That's receiving Christ. And instead of thinking it as so much as this is something I did so Jesus would come in, 
This is something God did in amazing grace as I pled to him in faith and repented of my sin. So this massive gift, here's the way John put it in the opening of his letter after describing in the beginning was the word. We have seen him. He was the light of the world. He's the life of men. He describes all these glories of Christ. And then he says to all who did, here it is again, receive him. In other words, receive the gift of him by faith because we believed in his name. Then he gave the right to become children of God. A massive transformation of our identity. And then he just clarifies, we weren't born as children of God by the will of our flesh, the will of any human being, not even our mother's prayers, but by God's mercy and his son coming in. One other way to think of it I think is helpful, and it'll be uh, the next time that we open Colossians together. Verse 10 of chapter 2. You have been filled. That's what it means to, be rece to receive him. To receive him in full. Not lacking anything. You didn't get a partial Jesus. It was the whole thing. In fact, interestingly here, as common as the pronouns are in Colossians, referring to Christ, there is a very big name Paul uses here. And there's an intentionality in what he's emphasizing which with each of these three titles. Each of them is vitally important in what we are receiving. So, first of all, Christ. It's an assertion that one must believe, receive him as Christ, as the anointed one of God, which is what Christ means, as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of all Old Testament promises from God that he would raise up someone to save his people, the Christ. Secondly, it's an assertion that one must receive and believe him as Jesus, the historical figure, God incarnate, come in a human body, being the son of God while at the same time being fully the son of man, born in the line of David in Bethlehem, yet from Nazareth, lived a sinless life, died a brutal death, which was his mission for coming, rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, having shown himself to witnesses. That's the Jesus. And then third, must not be left off. It's an assertion that one must receive and believe him as Lord or the Lord or your Lord. All of a person being fully submitted and surrendered to him, to his word, to his will. Billy Graham no man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had any emotional religious experiences. However, he's not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. And we can go back to verse 13 of chapter 1 and just be reminded there that we've been transferred, if we've received Christ, we've been transferred into his kingdom, and kingdom implies king, lord, ruler, over all. The point of all of this is, don't just think of Jesus as savior. Jesus as shepherd, though he is those. Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. But also of Jesus as lord. The emphasis is, it's not you've received something good Kind of good, mostly good, that supplements your goodness. 
so you'll be saved. It's not that you've received a Christ or a Jesus as a starting point. And it's not that you've received Christ Jesus the Lord along with Joseph Smith or Muhammad or any other prophet or any other king or any other God. The Lord. So, although we're going to see about what we're going to be to root and build up and establish our faith is to be on all this robust, this fully orbed, Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord. If you've already, and, and Paul's point is going to be, if you've already received all of him, this whole package of the Son of God, then, and it's sufficient for your salvation, then why look anywhere else for your sanctification? Why would you think in any way that he might not be enough for every need that you will ever have in the rest of your life and for all of eternity? It's when we view Christ as less than this that trouble arises. As Colossians 3.11, and you have to look well into the verse, but toward the end of it would have been great to have a new number right there. Three words, Christ is all. He's the entire package. He is the whole basis and means of salvation and of sanctification. Spurgeon, you must get to the very Christ in your faith and rest alone in him, or else you have not reached the treasury wherein all fullness is stored up. All fullness is in him radically. If there be fullness in his work or his gifts or his promises, all is derived from his person, which gives weight and value to all. So, taught, taught, received, and now the main verb, the main command in this, so walk. As a result, all the rest of the words that are coming are going to be modifying this walking. And this is a language that's often used to speak of just living life, going through life. We just sang about taking uh, tender steps along in our faith, and that's the idea that we're given here. So you've received this gift. Now you don't just sit and hold it. Now you walk. You live out that gift. You put it into application and into use in every single situation. So Paul in 2 Corinthians speaks of it as walking by faith. In Ephesians 2.10, he speaks of it as walking in the good works that we have been saved by grace through faith to do. But maybe the clearest illustration of this, the Apostle John used in his language in the second chapter of his first letter. By this we may know that we are, and here's the same phrase now that Paul loves so much, in him. Whoever says, professes, makes claim that he abides in him, junior hires, middle schoolers that just heard all that abiding in Sunday school, here it is again. Whoever says he abides in him, finds eternal life in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Obviously, not the physical walking without a car in Israel, but living the kind of life day after day that he did and becoming the kind of person that he was, though our attempts to imitate that fall far short. David Garland with a little longer thought here, but I think helpful, hopefully. It is one thing to assert the facts that Christ gave his life for us and was raised by God. However, it's quite another thing for that truth to permeate our whole lives so that it controls what we think and do. Paul recognizes that when Christians fully appreciate the significance 
of the facts of their salvation, the truths, they are more thankful to God for all they've been given and less vulnerable to the put-downs or come-ons of competing ideologies, which is what verse 8 is going to be about. In other words, anything else apart from Christ holds far less intrigue and interest and fascination to us because we are so absorbed in Christ, in his sufficiency, in all he has done, and in all he is doing for us. On the other hand, Garland goes on, if Christians take for granted, shrug off, or forget what they have received about Christ, they become easy marks for unsound philosophies to take them captive with false promises and enchantments. Enchantments. Then good finishing emphasis. Consequently, the doctrine about what God has accomplished for us in Christ, and that's going to be, you're going to really see it in detail in verses 11 to 15, must be engraved on our minds so that it continually inspires and sustains our life. So, you've been taught, you've received, now walk. And now we have four descriptors, and just for a moment, I want to take the final one, abounding in thanksgiving, and move it here. And in moving it, or thinking about it now, I'm simply trying to help you see that it's connected to walking. It's connected to day-to-day living and life. So, this is not occasionally thankful, not tacking it on to our prayers as an obligatory thing that we should do, not doing it only when we're reminded or something new and astounding happens to us, but it's a heart that's flooded with gratitude to God for his son and for all that that means in our lives. It's to be amazed continually and never growing old of the richness of being in Christ and Christ being in you. Filled to overflowing, feeling it continually. If we want to compare it to breathing, we're inhaling Christ and his power and his work, and we're exhaling worship and thanksgiving. It's a 24-7 attitude or posture as we go through life toward God that is never-ending. It's not once a year like our thanksgiving. It is day after day after day, hour after hour. A heart that's just bubbling, springing, flowing with thanksgiving. So Paul's modeled it in this letter. Whoops, forgot to take away all my abbreviating type in there. Sorry. Hopefully you can read my shorthand. One, three. You can look at your Bible for the full spelling and everything. (laughs) We always thank God. Nine verses later, still in his prayer, giving thanks to the Father. Then go all the way to the end of the book because it's still on prayer. Praying steadfastly and watchfully with thanksgiving. And then in the middle, it'll take us a long time before we're there, but in the middle is this beautiful expression of giving thanksgiving as we're taking in the word, as we're teaching each other, as we're singing to each other, that it's just abundance of thankfulness in our hearts to God for what he has done. Kent Hughes. Thankfulness is a good test of our spiritual state. A thankless spirit betrays a life which is no longer focusing on the greatness of Christ. And here's a good line, especially in light of rooted and built up. It is looking down, not up. Or we could say, and think of Colossians 3, 1. Seek the things above. Or we could say it is looking outward and not inward. Outward at our circumstances, not inward at God's work in our hearts. But thankful hearts herald spiritual health. 
All right, now back to the order that we see it in the verse. Uh, rooted is next. So walking, rooted. And we really could say if you see the in him after built up, that goes with rooted in, the sen- in its meaning as well. So rooted in him. So this is describing a faith that goes down, so to speak, like tree roots into the ground, ever deeper, ever wider, so that it's ever growing more grounded and anchored. Now, it's unseen to people's eyes. We don't see the roots. They're not the beautiful part that we admire about a tree often, although there's some phenomenal root systems, aren't there? But they're the key to every tree thriving. Hughes, uh, Kent Hughes, in his commentary, told about growing up where there were tumbleweeds everywhere. In fact, right next door to their home was a lot or acres of land that were filled with tumbleweeds. And his point was a tumbleweed just has one tiny little trunk. Short, thin, goes down into the ground, doesn't go far. So what happens to a tumbleweed? Through just a little bit of storm, a little bit of pressure, a little bit of wind, a little bit of whatever, and that thing snaps off, and for the rest of its life, it's not walking. It's not rooted. It's being blown and tossed to and fro all over. thought that was a helpful word picture. So here is the emphasis that not clinging to the soil, Christ, in a growing and widening range of ways, makes us susceptible to the constant blowing winds of our culture that bring us plausible arguments and philosophy that sounds good. Fifth trait we're talking about in here, I think, if I haven't lost count, built up in him. Now the the angle changes. Some people think Paul is changing the metaphor here to us being more of a building that brick by brick brick is being built up. I think that's fair and right, but I don't think we need to leave the metaphor of the tree and the roots if we think also of a tree above the surface growing ever uh, greater in its girth, in its branches, in its leaves, and in its fruit. Now this is the visible, noticeable part of life. The works of our faith, as James talks about it, that are evident. They're flowing out of us because the Spirit is producing them. And I would remind you here that the roots and the branches go just as wide as each other on a tree. So growing out in both ways, it's not tiny little roots in this robust tree. It's great root system, growth in the tree, uh, both of them paralleling each other. And just a reminder that that growth, that being built up, isn't always felt by us in everyday life. Like even this morning, your faith can be rooting down more, building up more, but you probably don't feel it. It's often so subtle, just like a tree's growth. Just day after day, nothing seems to change. But over time, it's radically changing and growing. And all of that is to lead now to being established in faith. Ever more sturdy, strong, steadfast, immovable. Other ways we can think of this are uh, 128, being mature in Christ. 123, warn that we have to have a faith that's stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. 120, uh, I'm sorry, 2-5, last week. A firmness of faith. All these are emphasizing God's intention and design and plan for us in putting Christ in us and putting us in Christ is that we develop into a towering oak, so to speak. 
So Jeremiah 17 uses this, and middle schoolers, Psalm 1 that you looked at this morning, uses this picture as well. And they're familiar to us, and just a reminder that this is really a reinforcing of what Colossians 2, 6, and 7 is describing uh, to us. And then I would just remind you again, abounding in thanksgiving should be saturating and soaking all of this. I don't root just out of duty. My rooting comes out of a heart that's so thankful for what God is doing. Same with being built up. Same with being established. Garland says, if the truth of what Christ's death and resurrection means sink into the core of our being, we will live with more thanksgiving and it will expel all other fears and worries. Failure to grasp this truth, however, will only breed anxiety and dissatisfaction with life and make us susceptible to all manner of fraudulent promises. Now, moving to verse 8. This is the way of living, verses 6 and 7, that must be in place for each individual believer and for us as a whole church. For us to hold course, stay on track, and become ever more established in our faith. If what, if what verses 6 and 7 emphasize as being critical are critical to avoiding and overcoming what verse 8 will warn us about. Because in every one of our lives and in every church's life, there will always be a relentless onslaught of temptations, attacks, influences, messages, and just natural tendencies of the human heart to look for help and answers to the challenges of life in something other than Christ. Satan himself wants us to look to anything but Christ especially the very things that Christ is offering us out of the riches of himself. So Paul, our God, now has Paul address for the rest of chapter 2 plausible arguments to be aware of, and the first one is going to be in verse 8. It's the first warning shot across the bow that addresses either four very similar concepts or four somewhat different concerns. So let's dive now into this in the remaining minutes that we have. Now we might title this what God warns those whom he puts in his son. See to it, he says at the beginning of verse 8, that no one takes you captive. And see to it has the idea of constant, careful, vigilant watch. Be diligent about it in all your teaching and all your learning. Make sure that no one, not one, because sometimes all it takes is one, captivity. See to it that no one takes you captive, traps you, ensnares you into wrong thinking, into thinking that isn't uh, according to Christ, as the end of the verse will say. So, bodily, entrapment we can see spiritual captivity we often don't see it's much harder to see but actually far more dangerous the idea is don't let yourself be kidnapped taken hostage entrapped imprisoned anything that keeps you from freely walking forward in Christ Jesus and here's the first of the four warnings that are either four sides of the same coin you can ponder that one or Philosophy is the main thing and everything flowing out of that. So philosophy, just literally, 
philo, the first half of the word, is love, where we get phileo, if you've heard that. And sophie, or sophia, is wisdom. So it just means the love of wisdom. It's, it's wanting to come up with the answers, the reasoning, the way to explain life, or the way to handle any kind of situation that we're in, from parenting to business to uh, death to whatever it might be. It's a way of looking at the complexities of life and dealing with them um, and making claims of what is true and what that should mean for individuals. So perhaps helpful here is just to recall in James chapter 3, God says there's two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom that comes from above and in verse 17 he, he, of chapter James 3, he describes some beautiful things. But the idea is the best philosophy, the best wisdom for living doesn't come from here on earth, from us. And now you remember that in 2.3 we were told that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, uh, wisdom, philosophy, living of life, are stored up, are hidden, are found only by us in Christ. And then James talks in chapter 3 about it, the wisdom that the world conjures up that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. All of this, Paul goes on to say, is empty deceit. Could be the describing philosophy in another angle or way or describing anything beyond that that is lies that are not truths that hold no genuine substance for human answers and human thriving. They may sound good, they may feel helpful for a time, but in the end, they always prove to be more harmful than helpful. Lies that not only fail to give us life, but suck more and more of life out of us. If you just think about Ecclesiastes and the constant drum that was banged throughout that book is, it's all meaningless. It's all vanity or vain or empty. It's all bubbles. It all provides nothing of any true significance. And that's carried over in Romans 1 when Paul's describing what those who won't thank God or worship him or acknowledge him, what will ultimately happen to all of their thinking, all of their thinking, we shouldn't be so surprised by it, futile, empty, useless, vain, and the futility of their minds also in Ephesians 4. And Jesus himself just describing as he challenges them, why won't you believe my word? Why won't you believe the truth? Don't we all feel that same frustration of those questions that Jesus asked? But it's because we're so captive to Satan, to the lies, to non-truth, that it just permeates and dominates. I don't know who said this, but uh, it was a, I thought it was a great description. That this empty deceit pleases men's fancies but ruins their faith. Christless teaching or teaching which does not put forth Christ as the answer is ultimately empty at its core and cannot fill anyone with anything except more emptiness. And now, either, so you'll see two according to, it's actually three with the, the phrase at the end. So all of these could well be describing the philosophy and empty deceit. Or it could be another thing, that we do these things according to human tradition or practice. This is the way I've always done it. This is all I know. This is a tradition of my family. This is tradition of my country, of my people. 
whatever ways, this, might, this is a tradition of my church, all the ways in which we're simply going through motions that are traditions, but they're human traditions. They don't come from Scripture. They're just simply the things that we've added on or replaced Scripture with that we prefer to do instead. And Jesus had such uh, scintillating words for the religious leaders who did this over and over in the religious realm. But don't limit tradition just to that. We can think of it in all other kinds of ways that humans follow traditional practices and traditional ways, the ruts that humans have run in for thousands of years and simply run in those same ruts. We'll talk more about this one when we get to verse 16. And then according to the elemental spirits of the world, meaning to whatever culture or society you are surrounded by and immersed in. Some argue that this is a reference to the spirit realm, to Satan and his demons, to cosmic forces, and you think of all the ways that people are caught up in those spirits, any lesser created spirit other than God the Spirit. And, it, and uh, Paul talked about in Ephesians too, like we're just following this spirit that's in, at work in the sons of disobedience. Not just worship of Satan or spiritism in strength, but just this idea that the spirit world, that there are forces greater than us that are in charge. Or secondly, this elemental spirits can mean just human thinking that compared to God's wisdom is so elemental, so basic, so kindergarten, so immature in its ways of thinking. Uh, John MacArthur says, philosophy or the spirit of the world that does not advance man, it goes the other way, it regresses him. It keeps him increasingly infantile. And so our warning in Romans 12, 2 is, don't be conformed. So captive in Colossians 2, back in Romans 12, conformed to this world, to the elemental principles of it. And all of this finishes with a summary that all of these things are not according to Christ. So let's clarify. Here's what makes them damaging and unhelpful is that they're not aligned with, not based upon Christ and the gospel and the word. They're not teaching us and driving us and pointing us toward Christ. They're ways of thinking that are contrary to Christ or without Christ or adding other things to Christ. Any way of thinking, which is saying Christ and the revelation of Christ in his word is not sufficient, not supreme, not preeminent. So let me say again that there will always be an onslaught, onslaught of temptations, attacks, influences, messages, natural tendencies for believers individually and for the churches to look for answers in all the challenges of walking and living in life in something other then, or not according to Christ. Yeah, and I've added the J.C. Ryle quote here as well as just a graphic way. Satan can't destroy the gospel, so he works hard to neutralize its usefulness in our lives by adding, having us add things to it, Jesus plus this, subtracting, take away some of Christ, and you think of all the false religions that are based upon that, or substitution for Christ, where Christ is sufficient. 
Now, we live certainly in a day and age of philosophizing and teaching and information, an endless supply of books rolling off the printing presses, all of our advertising, ever-increasing amounts of social media uh, coming in our eyes, coming in our ears, entering into our minds of anyone and everyone's theory about anything and everything on the planet. Even the voices in the Christian culture can be good, so helpful, but also devoid of any real help. They bear the name, but they don't point as the answer to Christ. So let's keep in mind always, everything that we're being taught, everything we're learning, everything we're taking in is either helpful to establishing us and rooting us in Christ, or it's harmful. It either increases and establishes our faith or weakens it. It either accelerates, gives boost to our walking in Christ, or drags it down. So be careful. As Hebrews 5, again, we noted it last week, points out, we need to grow in the skill of discerning by constant, I would say by daily practice, to distinguish what is good, what is according to Christ, and what is evil? What is anything else? So just some simple questions that are good to keep running through your mind as you scroll along on your phone or anywhere else. How much of this teaching and philosophizing aligns with what the Bible's truth says? To what degree does this teaching and philosophizing point me toward Christ and the truths of him? And maybe a big challenge for some of us Am I listening to other voices more than I'm in the word myself listening to God's voice? In closing, I want to take you to another scripture God had Paul write to a different church, Corinth, at a different time, but I think gives a great explanation or unpacking of this warning in Colossians 2.8. So it's in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 3, 4, and 5, where he tells us that we are in an endless, relentless spiritual and mental battle for which God gives us weapons for the warfare, but they're not fleshly, human-originated weapons or philosophies or arguments. They're from him and they have, and his word, and they have divine power to... Here's what God wants us doing. Destroy arguments. Now where have we seen the word arguments in Colossians? Number two, four. I'm telling you all this so that you're not taken captive or taken in, uh, deluded by plausible arguments. Things that sound good in a lot of ways, but if you really study them, don't have Christ at the center of them. We destroy them. We destroy them not only by disbelieving them, but by bringing the truth everywhere that God gives us opportunity to do so. Secondly, we are to destroy every lofty opinion. We can, I think, safely insert philosophy there. Every lofty philosophy that our American culture is putting up arrogantly that's raised against the knowledge of God. Or we could say, using Colossians language, that it's not according to Christ and the gospel and the word. And then finally, 
after destroying or while in the process of destroying, we take every thought and now see the word captive. Only what's the twist now? Rather than us being taken captive by the philosophies and empty deceit, we are taking captive our own thoughts, guarding every one of them to align with God's word in order to obey Christ. And then finally, just back to Colossians 3.16. It's a verse I've put up most Sundays that we've been in Colossians. This is probably at least your 10th time of seeing it. Let the word of Christ dwell, live, thrive, be moving about in all of your inner being, in you richly. And with that then, let your teaching, admonishing, singing, and here's thankfulness again in your hearts to God. Garland, I'll close us. The scripture provides our only weapon against the incursion of culturally based values. Rightly heard, it fends off the danger that we will mistake our false selfish hopes for divine truth and recast the true Lord into a fake one. And I would just say, insert here, nothing else puts us, points us to Christ in the truth more or better than the pure word of God. Garland. Our task then is to present God's word in such a way that others will see its hidden riches, which we discover more and more as we study. Armed with that word written on our hearts or dwelling in us richly, Christians will not be vulnerable to imitation truth. The neglect of scripture for more current fascinations spells doom for the church. And that is what will help we who have been given an amazing receiving of Christ Jesus the Lord. Help us walk in him, abound in thanksgiving, grow ever more rooted in him, be out, built out ever more in him, establish our faith ever more in him so that nothing, nothing takes us captive but Christ himself. Father, thank you for Colossians. Thank you for these seemingly simple but profoundly significant truths. Again, grip our hearts with them and transform us by them. And God, I pray for anyone in here who in any way is being captive to any kind of lies and empty deceit, that you will make that clear to them and that you will convict them and that you will bring them back according to Christ, focused on him, not deviating from that for anything that sounds or feels better, but is empty. We long to walk in you, abound in thanksgiving, grow ever more rooted in you and established in our faith. We're so thankful for the riches of Christ in us. Oh God, help us grasp the abundance of that, how filled we are, and live according to that. Above all else, we pray in the glorious, beautiful name of our Jesus, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.